You're listening to audio from Redemption Church of Houston. We are a people who believe that Jesus has invited everyone into his radically inclusive, world-altering way of love. That means that when we gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or in homes throughout the week, you are welcome here. Regardless of your social status, gender, race, sexual orientation, or politics, we want you to fully and actually join, grow, worship, and serve with us. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, Jesus invites you into his radical love just the way you are. And so do we. Morning, Redemption. Um, my name is Jordan. Um, I'm not Brandon. If you're new here, um, maybe you've seen a sermon or so, and there's usually um, a man named Brandon who's up here, and that is not me. Um, my name is Jordan, and I have a title. It is preacher in residence or resident preacher, something along those lines. Um, but what that all that means is that um, the church is really nice and lets me come and, and teach here periodically and not have to do the really actual like practically very hard work of like pastoring and discipling and you know running a church um so yeah I'm happy happy to be here uh this morning it is I feel like it's a crazy morning a crazy a crazy week I um when I'm not doing this because I only do this a little bit I'm a teacher and so I run on a school schedule. And so if you run on a school schedule or if you have kids, you know that it's spring break for pretty much most, I think, of Houston. So yay for spring break. But what that also means is you probably just had a super crazy week. I, at my school, we just had um, spirit week, which is super fun and the kids love it, but it's also insane. And it means that the kids have dressed up every day. And so they're all either climbing up the walls or crying about something and losing parts of their costumes. And they're tired because we've been in school for a while and we all just need a break. Um, And it's crazy. And then also um, it was a full moon this week and I've just like never cared about that. And now I'm around kids and every time they're insane I'm like is it a full moon and it is and so there's something with the gravitational forces I don't know about how moons work but um, there's something that happens I there's every time Um, and then we also just lost an hour of sleep so I feel like there's a chaoticness to this moment that we're in uh, for myself at least and so what I pray for for us this morning in this moment is that uh, my words and this space are things that are our vessels uh, for God. That's it. That they are peace if we need peace, that they're strength if we need strength, um, that they are our rest, um, that they're comfort, um, whatever uh, you feel like this week has built you up to to this point today. I pray for us in this moment that my words and that this space um, is God to them. Um, Our scripture this morning is from John 17. And in this part of John, where we are in in the gospel is we're at the Last Supper. And John is a shorter, shorter gospel. It's 21 chapters. And of those 21 chapters, five chapters are the Last Supper. That's a lot 
It's like we're pushing a quarter of the entire gospel is about this meal. And the chapters are 13 through 17 that are the Last Supper. And so our scripture is in 17. So it's like this buildup of the supper. And now we're at the very end. And what we are left with are these verses that is Jesus praying. All of chapter 17 is Jesus praying. And so he's praying for himself. He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for um, future believers and also, and also non-believers. And the part that is our text today is Jesus praying for um, his disciples. And specifically, he is praying this prayer that really hits on a tension that we all live in here um, as Christians. And so that tension that we live in is this tension of being both apart from the world, outside of it, but also very much in the world, very much here and embodied and a part of it. So I'm going to read it again. And in reading it, I want us to like tune our ears to language that says we're set apart. So that language is things like holy. Holy means set apart. So holy, um, consecrated means to be made holy. So consecrated, set apart. Um, but also attune your, your ears to in the world language. So stuff about being in the world, stuff about um, being missional being here, right, like in this world, on mission. So I'm going to read through it and just kind of listen to the pulling, but also the presentness of this tension in this text. Now I'm returning to you. So this is Jesus praying to God. He says, now I, Jesus, am returning to you, God. And I'm saying these things in the world's hearings so that my people can experience my joy that's completed in them. The godless world hated them because of it. So the godless world hated my people because of it. So these people are pushed out from this godless world. They're opposed. Because they, because my people, did not join the world's ways. Just as I did not join the world's ways. So they're pulled apart. They're set outside. They're opposed. I'm not asking that you take them out of the world. So now all of a sudden they're in the world. They're not out of the world. Now we're in it. But that you guard them from the evil one. They're no more defined by the world. Now they're not the world. Than I'm defined by the world. Jesus is not the world. Make them holy, so set apart, consecrated, made holy with the truth. Your word is consecrating truth. In the same way that you gave me a mission in the world, now we're back in the world, I give them a mission in the world. My people are in the world. I'm consecrating myself for their sakes so they'll be truth consecrated in their mission. So Jesus' desire for us is exactly what his life was. It was this space of tension where he was divine. He was holy. He was fully set apart from this world. And yet, Jesus was also fully human and embodied and here in this world, right? Jesus had a heart. He had a pulse. Jesus' muscles ached after like a long day of teaching and ministering and walking, he lived here. He existed here in some sort of a home, in some sort of a, a city or town and in a region of this world. Jesus lived in that exact um, tension that he is now saying, praying to God that we too live in. Because of the Holy Spirit's indwelling in us, we too encounter this, right? We are also holy. We're also set apart but we're also absolutely fully human. 
We're here. We live here. We're in this world, right? We have a heart. We have a pulse. I have to wake up in the morning for my muscles to ache. Like, it takes nothing, you know. We're fully human, but we're also called to be set apart because of Christ's holiness. I think the church has been trying to answer this question of, like, how do we do this for forever? And I think oftentimes we approach this question in a spectrum of, like, secular and sacred. And we try and find a space in the middle of, like, well, we can do things that make us a little bit sacred. We're going to do things a little bit different than other people, things that set ourselves apart. But also, you know, it's okay for us to experience the world. We can, we can also, we can listen to secular music. We can watch secular things or whatever, right? I think a lot of times those are the questions that we're asking in order to satisfy this tension. And I mean, the church has been being split over this for forever. So it's been a thing forever. How many churches have been split because of like what kind of music to play, right? It, it, can't, be, it can't be modern music. It can't be contemporary music because that's too secular. Um, it has to be hymns or something. So like it splits. There's this constant struggle in trying to answer this question of like how much a part of the world are we supposed to be and how much, um, how much a part of the world and how much a part of the world, right? Like how much should we be in and how much should we be outside of this world? We're constantly trying to ask that question. And this morning, I do not have an answer for that question. I have, I've got nothing for you on that. Um, uh, quite frankly, like I wrote this sermon while Love Island was on in the background, so... So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm grappling with it myself. Um, so who knows? I don't know. I have, full disclosure, I have cut caffeine out for the last month, and I had a coffee this morning, so I don't know where, the, I don't know, only the Spirit knows where we're going. Um, but what I do want to say this morning, in, in, to that effect of this, this question about, like, secular, sacred, what do we do, is I think that regardless of where we come, what, regardless of what decision we, we come to, it needs to be one of, of deep grace and humility, um, knowing that to be, you know, in this world is good and to be apart from this world is also good. But what I do want to do today in response to that question of this tension of being in the world and being not of the world, what I want to do is I want to present some spiritual disciplines that I think completely address this, this question, completely address this tension. And instead of making us find some spot in the middle to be a little bit sacred and a little bit secular, somewhere in the middle. What I think these spiritual disciplines do is calls us to be fully set apart and to be fully human and embodied at the same time. That's what I want to do this morning. Um, We're currently in a series called Renewed, and so what we're doing is uh, we're talking about spiritual disciplines. We're talking about these different actual activities, essentially, that we as Christians partake in in order to renew ourselves um, and be like, like Christ. Um, to renew ourselves in communion with God. In week one, Brandon preached on uh, the spiritual discipline of of prayer and of praying. And the second week, he he spoke on silence and simplicity and solitude, this idea of like letting go in our spiritual life. Um, As I have prepared, we're in week three now, as I've prepared for this and reflected on the spiritual disciplines as a whole and listened to Brandon's sermons, I've become more and more convinced that spiritual disciplines, what they are doing is they're calling us into a practice that is pushing against the world. It's a practice that's pushing against how the world wants us to act and how they want us to move. 
So I think prayer, our first week, pushes against this desire for self-sufficiency and this desire for control. It causes us to take all the things in our lives, all the things outside of our lives in this world, and direct them out of our hands and to God, and to rightly prioritize God as above and you know, ultimate creator, right? There's this pushing against our own self-sufficiency and control when we pray and we seek help and refuge and we fall to our knees. I think last week's simplicity, solitude, and rest, I think it pushes against our tendency towards like chaos and noise and rushing, hurrying, overstimulation, um, and frankly, fear of being left alone like with our own thoughts and our own self. Um, I think the world is constantly trying to draw us into either producing or consuming at all times. Our worth can be found in both of those things at all times. And if you're not adding to the world, then you are taking from it. I think like that's, that's this current that we're trying to be drawn into. And I think what rest and simplicity and silence does is it stops both of those things. And it says in this moment, you're going to push against both of those things and both of those desires and you're just going to exist, and you're just going to be. And in that moment, that's where God's going to be. The more I've thought about spiritual disciplines as a whole, the more this image of like a current of water just kind of kept coming to my head. And I feel like we can be this like small like rock on like the shore of some sort of a river with a current running over us at all times, It's easy for us to not feel that the current's there, but it's there, and it's moving, and it's shaping us, and it's shaping that rock. But if you periodically take the rock out of the water and just set it aside for some sort of time, and then return it, and you just do that on and off, over and over, that rock begins to be formed in a different way than the rest of the rocks around it. And it doesn't mean that the rock isn't in the stream. The rock's in the stream. But there's moments where that rock is intentionally being taken out of and doing something that is the opposite of what that current is trying to form it into. And I think that's what spiritual disciplines are, are, are really inviting us to do. They're inviting us to push, again, push against this natural current of the world. And so this morning, for our third week, we're going to look at these spiritual disciplines of fasting and of feasting. These two, I believe, are acts of defiance, of taking ourselves out of this current that the world has us naturally in, setting ourselves outside of it. I think that these disciplines are so unique because the way in which we set ourselves outside is by fully using our bodies to do so. In, in these disciplines, we are not primarily using our thoughts or our words. We're not primarily um, silencing, like doing, doing nothing. What we're doing is something that is like active and fully has to do with our body. And so I think that these two spiritual disciplines can invite us into a place where we are being defiant, stepping outside of this world, pushing against the current, but also doing it in a way where we're fully embodied, where we're fully here on this earth. We can neither feast nor fast without our bodies. We must have those things. And so um, I'm gonna just talk a little bit this morning about both of those spiritual disciplines um, from that framework. 
as points of setting ourselves outside of the current of the world, but doing so with our bodies that root us here in the now. I'm going to start with fasting. Fasting is something that I have always been in a, like a Protestant evangelical space in my faith, and we are not big fasters, to be honest. I now work at a Greek Orthodox school, big fasters, big feasters. They nail it. We, we, we just don't, we don't really do it corporately. Um, I frankly hadn't practiced it very much myself. And so really what I know of, of, of fasting is really what I've received in teaching when I've read a book or when I've received some sort of a sermon. And so how I've always viewed fasting from these teachings is in a couple ways. The first one is that I should fast or fasting is in moments where you need a little extra spirituality. So let's say you have a big decision coming up or you're really like torn by something. And so you need to have clarity and discernment. Fasting is this way to, um, to, to effectively call on God and make that decision um, in the moment. Maybe you're feeling particularly distracted. Maybe you need a particularly spiritual moment in your life. Fasting is a way to do that. And you do that because instead of eating or preparing food or cleaning up your dishes from the food in, this mo- in these times that would be given to eating and food, you're not eating. And so you therefore exchange that time with prayer. So that's the first way I've heard it. Second way I've really heard the teaching is that it is a discipline for your body. That Christ was very self-controlled and disciplined. And so therefore, with fasting, you are disciplining your body, just like Christ was. I do not think either of these things are untrue at all. I think that it absolutely accomplishes both of those things, like without a doubt. Do those things. They're good. I always struggled with fasting, though, because when it's presented like that, the act of fasting itself becomes some sort of means to another spiritual end. Fasting itself is a mechanism in order to do something else that's more spiritual, right? You fast so you can pray. You fast so that your body then becomes like Jesus, and then in that, in that becoming of like Jesus, you are then more spiritual, and I just always struggle. I'm like, well, can't we just get to that point with something else? Isn't this a middleman? I want to eat. And so I think I've always struggled with it because of that, because we don't really treat other spiritual disciplines like this. We don't pray in order to then be done praying so that we can encounter God somewhere else, right? We don't go into silence and solitude so that later we can see God better. And I don't think we read scripture for that either. We don't go to scripture and say, I'm going to do, I'm going to be here in this space. And then when I leave, it will open up a door for me. Now, I think that spiritual disciplines of that, when you do that, you can then see God better and be more attuned to him in the world. But it is in the prayer. It, it, is, it is in the silence. It is in the scripture that we meet God. And we know that. I don't think that's hard for us. But I do think we don't somehow apply that to fasting. It's not in the fasting that we meet God. Somehow, I feel like I've always heard that it is after the fasting. The fasting opens the door to God. And as I've prepared for this and and looked at this, I just don't feel like I see that in scripture. And so again, I don't think that's a wrong way to discipline your body or make more time for prayer. I think those are great things. I think they're byproducts of the fact that 
in fasting, we can actively see and meet God. So I'm gonna look at scripture really quick for this. Um, Fasting is done a ton in the Old Testament. It's done a lot. Um, Let's see, in Judges, we have examples of uh, a loss of a battle. When there's some sort of battle that is lost. In Judges, there's an example where the tribe, the whole nation of Israel is at civil war with each other. And as they are in battle, the losing team, the losing side, they fast in mourning and in grief for loss. Another example is a relief from famine. The prophet Jeremiah and the prophet Joel, in two different instances, they're speaking about this land that is in famine. The land is groaning and grieving, right? It's being dried up. It's producing no food, and there's a drought. And their response for themselves and to the people is fast. In response to the literal brokenness, the land is broken, it's not producing. In response to the brokenness, they say fast. Another example is when there's like a death of a leader, Saul's death, um, when people found King Saul and they were dead, they saw it and they fasted. When King David saw Saul, who was trying to kill King David, he responded to that by mourning and by fasting. Another example is like personal sorrow. We see Hannah, who is struggling with infertility and just weeping and groaning about it. And what she does is she fasts in those days. When there's a sin of a community, people fasted. So when Daniel and Nehemiah, when both of these people heard about the state of Jerusalem, which was to be this holy, bright city on a hill, the fact that it was grievous and in ruins and and unrighteous and, and, and oppressive, when they heard of these things, they responded by fasting and sorrow. And lastly, we see people fast for personal sin. After David had his affair and his child with the, with the woman he had his affair with was dying, he, was, he fasted in sorrow and repentance. And King Ahab, he killed the owner of this prosperous vineyard in order to attain that prosperity for himself. And in response to that horrible act and repentance, he fasted. So, so what I see in scripture is not that fasting is something that allows us to then have more time with God. What I see in scripture is that fasting is first and foremost a response to the brokenness of this world. Like That's what I see in scripture. And I think that's what we're called to in our fasting. When we as Christians see death, and sorrow, and loss, when we see um, oppression and injustice in this world that we do so often, it feels like it's hard to escape it when we have media and technology constantly at our fingertips. Our response to that is fasting. We do that so that our bodies, our physical bodies, move into a space of longing and groaning In our hunger, our physical bodies ache for something 
and long for something. Our bodies and our spirits are so interconnected. We know this in how anxiety and depression have like physiological effects on our bodies. And so this spiritual discipline, it moves and it leads with your body. It calls your body to ache and to groan and to long, really crave something. And so your spirit follows in suit. And so in that moment, what you are doing when you're fasting is inviting your spirit to long and ache and groan for God here in this world, in the now. In all of these moments, in the Old Testament, we see people longing for God's presence, saying, God, will you come now? Will you be here now? In our fasting, our bodies enter into a state of groaning and longing, and our spirits follow suit. Fasting is this way that we physically feel a protest against the world. We physically feel the sorrow and the longing and the groaning in response to this world. We pull ourselves outside of it in protest and defiance to it, but we do it in a way that fully uses our bodies at the same time. We're using our bodies in order to protest this world. We are fully embodied as we're waiting for the kingdom of God to come and we're stepping outside of the world in order to do it. In fasting, we can do both of those things fully. We can be fully in, we need to be fully in. We're using our bodies, but we're also fully not of the world. We are standing in opposition to it. Feasting. Feasting is something I am more familiar with. Um, Feasting is kind of like a literal opposite, in a sense, of fasting, in many senses. Um, Fasting is this longing and aching for the kingdom of God to come, because it is not yet here. Feasting is the opposite side of that tension. Feasting is celebrating and seeing and saying, God is here now. Let us eat and let us drink and let us enjoy the fact that God's goodness is here now. You can both feast and you can fast, both spiritual. Look at that. It's not that hard to be a Christian, guys. Um, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. I did a fast this week, and Kendrick would be like, no, girl, it was hard for you. (laughs) Um, uh, But feasting is the opposite of fasting. It is celebrating that God's kingdom is here. While it is not yet here, and we long and we groan, and we should have seasons where we do so with our bodies, we also have seasons with feasting where we say God's kingdom is here, and we celebrate, and we eat, and we indulge. It should be no surprise to us that feasting is important to our spiritual formation because Jesus did it a lot. He did it all the time. Like in the Old Testament when they're longing and groaning for God to come and they fast, we see in the New Testament, Jesus is here, they feast. They feast, they celebrate God's presence in the now. They feasted to the point where Jesus was criticized for feasting. They say, why do you feast so much? And his response was, because God's here. When I'm no longer here, you fast. But when I'm here, you feast. Jesus was criticized because he feasted so much. Jesus was also criticized because of who he feasted with. Because he feasted with sinners and outsiders. It was very known that Jesus was a feaster. Also in Jesus' ministry, he, he chose the dinner table and he chose feasts as these intentional places to reveal great things. 
He chose the dinner table as a place for teaching and for communion and for intimacy. And he chose the dinner table as the place to reveal that God would die. That's where our scripture is from this morning, is at this Last Supper. And Jesus chose, it will be at a feast in which I will reveal that God will die. That's what our faith is based on, is the fact that God died and God rose. All right, so it's this twofold part of what our faith is. Our faith is based so much on the fact that God died, that our, our space should be a space of humility and sacrifice and giving because the God of the world did the ultimate sacrifice, right? And that was revealed at a feast, at a table. And finally, Jesus in his, in his ministry used the imagery of feasting for the sacrament of his body and his blood, could have used any metaphor. There's a lot of metaphors he could have used. We have a trillion metaphors for anything spiritual, especially in the Protestant church, right? And he could have used anything. And instead, what he did use is a meal. Meals were important to Jesus. And we see this all throughout scripture. I think we could stop there and say, Jesus did it, so we should do it. I don't think that's a bad thing. We can do that. I do want to invite us, though. We can ask the question, well, why did Jesus do that? We can question Jesus. That's okay. Our church is a place where we say it is okay to question Jesus. So I'm going to do that this way. I'm going to say, well, then why did Jesus do that, though? I think it's great. I think we should do it because he did it. But why? I think, first of all, Scripture has always attested to the kingdom of God being a place of, of great feasting and indulgence. In Isaiah chapter 25, there's this picture of what the kingdom of God is going to look like and what it's going to look like is a feast. It says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. When the kingdom of God is described, it is a place where there's no hurt, no sorrow, no death, and there's a ton of food. There's abundance. There's feasting. That's this like two-fold description of what the kingdom of God is right now for Jesus. That was the scripture that he had. And so, because of that, he said, God is here, and so I'm going to heal people, I'm going to wipe away tears, and also I'm going to feast. And so we too are invited to do that. But we can ask, we can ask one more question. We can say, well, why did Jesus do it? Well, we see scripture that Jesus had attest to the kingdom of God being a big feast. So he, he also used feasting imagery. But we can also ask, but why was it attested to in scripture? Why was it ever in there in the first place? And I think that when we, when we continue to do this, we can get to a place where it's like, well, let's, what do we think about feasting? What's our experience with feasting? It's, it's okay to use your own experience in life to sometimes feel more confident in what scripture says. I just want to invite us into that. That was a hard thing for me for a long time. So why is this in scripture? Let's think about feasting. Feasting is inherently communal. You don't feast alone. 
It's with people. It's deeply relational. In feasting, you gain support. You have intentional moments with people. You don't just like kind of casually do it. You don't accidentally feast. There's intentionality in it. And it's inclusive. It's something where if you're there, you're, you're at the table. You're feasting. I've never been to any sort of a dinner party, feast, celebration, where everyone there can, go, can be there, but not everyone can be at the table. That's what we're invited to in this feasting. Uh, it's also, feasting is indulgent. When we look at the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden is like the most extravagant, indulgent place. It is bountiful. It is green. It is full of life. It is full of luxury. That is the Garden of Eden. That is what the kingdom of God will be. And so in our feasting, we get to experience indulgence and extravagance and abundance. God wants those things for us. Also in feasting, I've experienced lots of like sensory pleasures. Like it tastes good. Food tastes good. It smells good. If your host is good and they set a good vibe, it sounds good. You've got some sort of curated playlist playing, maybe. Um, But also you hear laughing and you hear conversation. There's something pleasurable about the sounds of feasting. It looks beautiful. There's pleasure in the beauty that is there when you see people gathered together. Um, Michael Frost, he uses this term called thin places. And I think it is the perfect term to describe feasting. Um, He says, the Celts spoke of thin places where the fabric that separates heaven and earth is so thin that it becomes almost translucent and one is able to encounter the joy and the peace of heaven. In the Celtic tradition, such places give us an opening into the magnificence and the wonder of the world to come. To them, a thin place is where the veil that separates heaven and earth is lifted and one is able to receive a glimpse of the glory of God. I firmly believe that that is what we're called to in the spiritual discipline of feasting, is to enter into and to experience this thin place where we are intentionally seeking out and experiencing things in the kingdom of God that are good and are pleasurable and are abundant. I feel as though feasting, however, is also this act of defiance. I've just spent this time, I think, speaking to why feasting is this so good in this world embodied thing. But I too, just like with fasting, just like with other spiritual disciplines, I think it is also an act of defiance that pulls us away from the current of the world. Why is that? I think that as a whole, feasting is this ultimately defiant act through consistent humility and self-sacrifice in a culture of selfishness and fear of scarcity. Let's think about all the things that a feast. Let's think about the food. Feasts are full of food. Food is this thing that is fully necessary for survival of human beings. We have to have food. There's very few things in this world that we must have to survive or we will die. Food is one of those things. And in a world in which we are fearful for scarcity, in which we are fending for ourselves, what feasting does is, is, hey, take that resource, one of the few things that you have to have in order to live, and go get a lot of it 
and go give it to other people. Share it with other people. Feasting is saying that, hey, I'm going to give a limited resource. It might not feel as limited today in this world, and I understand that. But in reality, it is. I'm going to go take this limited resource and something that I could have for myself, and I'm going to give it and share it to you. This life source I will give to you. Think about time. Feasting takes time. It takes a lot of time. Um, I, like I said, I love feasting. And so we have people over at our house a decent amount. And we like, we'll try and do dinner parties and stuff with them. And so I know, Kendrick knows how much time it can take to prepare for that. I think a lot of people here knows how much time it can take. It takes time. And even if you're not the one hosting, if you're the one attending, feasting takes time. You're giving up time. And in a world where time is a limited resource, we only have so much time, in which our desire is to hoard it for ourselves because of fear of scarcity, feasting says, give it away. This thing that could take no time, make it take time. Push against that desire to hoard that for yourselves and give it to other people. Uh, money, feasting costs money. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't cost nothing. It, it costs money to buy groceries. Maybe it just costs money to drive to the place. There's a sense of financial sacrifice that goes in to a feast because it's abundant and extravagant. And so in a culture in which we are constantly fearful of the scarcity of money and we respond by hoarding it to ourselves, feasting pushes against that. says, nope, we're not going to do that right now. Intentionally do something that costs more money than it needs to. And lastly, feasting takes effort. It is so easy for us to feel, and there's a reality to it, that our energy is a tank that is limited. I get that. And feasting takes effort. It is just an objective truth that it is easier to not feast. It's not convenient. It takes time and effort to talk to people. Small talk takes effort. Knowing people takes effort. Like, just being around people takes effort. It takes effort as the host to prepare. There's so much effort and labor that goes into feasting that if you were to do, take the alternative route and not feasting, you save. So in this world in which we're constantly worried about how much energy do we have to produce and consume, how can we hoard it to ourselves, feasting says, no, give it away right now. Go put effort in where you don't necessarily have to. Put the effort in to know people. Put the effort in to talk to people. Put the effort in to put on something to give to other people. Feasting is this act of defiance in so many ways. It makes us step outside of this current that's drawing us in to a scarcity mindset, to selfishness. And what it does is it says we're going to step outside of this and we're going to do it in a way that is all, way, all revolved around physically being at a feast with your body and putting food into your body and eating and, and consuming food. In this, we are set apart from this world. We are saying no to all the things that we just talked about, scarcity mentality of all of our resources. We're saying no to that. And we're doing it in a way that is fully involving our bodies, the nourishment of our bodies and the nourishment of other people's bodies, and the physical celebration that comes with it.
This morning, I just wanted to present to you feasting and fasting as spiritual disciplines that help us push against the world and set ourselves apart from this world, but does so in a way in which we're fully embodied and we're fully here. All right, we're, we're, we're in that tension of how do we do it. We're in this tension of God's kingdom is, is not here, but it's also here. And how do we respond to that? And I say we respond to that by fasting and longing for God's kingdom to come with our bodies, but feasting and celebrating and indulgence and extravagance and inclusivity because God's kingdom is here and do so with our bodies. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, get coffee with a pastor or visit us on a Sunday, then go to redemptionhou.com. And please know today that you are fully loved and fully accepted just the way you are. We hope to hear from you soon.